You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Caitlin, Rodney, Mark, Patrick, Towner. An almost full house this morning. Almost. Mark, I understand you have an exciting announcement to make for uh, I do. our listening I, audience. Our listening audience, I know, will be thrilled to hear that after time off for COVID by popular demand, the Alderman Family NCAA Tournament Men's Division One basketball pool will be returning. Everybody on this podcast, of course, will be uh, an entrant. I, I think I'll comp the entrants on this podcast since nobody ever sends their money anyway. And any listeners who would like to join can find us on our on our website. So March March is a week away, not even. And Mark, are you actually going to pay the winner this year? Or is this going to be another, Well, I win the pool and you keep the money? Now, the unwritten rule, as Howard learned when he accidentally fell upside down into a win one year, is that if an alderman family member doesn't win, we donate the money to charity if we get around to it. Got it. This is this is something that you didn't talk about during my recruitment process. Yeah, okay, this could, Rodney, this could have wrong. this could have turned the tide in the other direction. I can, know. Can I can I ask a question as a newbie, real quick, about the alderman pool? I mean, how in the world does COVID affect an NCAA tournament pool? <laughs> well, one year That's you may question. recall it affected the tournament. Well, I, I know that, but it's 2023, Mark. Well, Rodney, you and I don't know one another that well yet. We're getting to, but but you may be shocked to learn that I am not the most advanced technology user in the group, <laughs> and it took me three years to figure out how to get it back yeah. on the uh, on the website. So, well, that that means that during COVID, he didn't want to go to get the newspaper to figure out everybody's point total. Yeah, that, that's what that. I mean. Yeah. What, that's what we're talking. That COVID was the greatest life catch-all excuse ever given to Mark Alderman for every situation, and he it doesn't <laughs> matter in twenty twenty-three. Yeah. He's not giving that, that up. Say, I, I I am proud to be known well by my colleagues. Rodney will soon <laughs> have that that level of understanding where. It's all about not, it's the newspaper. Thank you, Patrick. All right. Well, it is 2023. And unfortunately, there are negative things happening in the world, like like Ukraine. And this week, the president basically snuck into, <laughs> sort of snuck into to Ukraine, to Kiev. And I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. It's just, I love these stories. He takes off from Andrews in darkness in a cargo plane and flies to Poland and then takes a 10-hour overnight train to Kiev. And it's just, it's it's pretty amazing. Obviously, it wasn't a secret since they told the Russians he was going in so as to avoid any inadvertent strike while there, which... Fortunately, there was 
there was nothing bad that happened in that regard, but he's, he's in and out Towner. I, I think the, I think he struck a very strong pose in taking the trip and his speech afterwards, just ripping Putin from Poland. And to me, it was a, it was a, it was a strong appearance by the president, strong statement. I completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, I don't know that it was necessarily a surprise. I could have told you that Biden was going to Ukraine uh, sometime over the next year or two and and surrounding or in advance of the one year anniversary when he happens to be in Poland next door. Uh, you know, every president has like two surprise trips. Like they, it's like now just a given. It's like guests at the State of the Union. It's not a surprise anymore. Surprise trips are going to happen to a war zone. You're, the president's going to daringly fly into Afghanistan or to, or to Iraq. That's what we've had generally for the last for the last twenty years. Um, and and now Ukraine. And so I, it was good. It was a good trip. It was good to see him and Zelensky there in Kiev. It was, I thought his speech uh, in Poland, especially after uh, his trip to Ukraine was very good. It's something where, you know, it's it's a weird place for me. I strongly agree with the Democrats with this hawkish national security uh, statement that, uh, and I disagree with with the Republicans on it. So, so I thought all positives uh, from that. Well, I'm but, not sure you can paint with, as broad of a brush as you know, just painted as far as where people sit. And we'll get into that. But Mark, what's yeah. your, what's your take? I agree. You know agree. what you're going to say, but I'm giving you a chance to say it. I, I appreciate that. And what I'm going to say is that Joe Biden is the leader of the free world, that Ukraine is a war about freedom. And he made a very bold and very brave statement. And I, I hear you, Towner, the, the surprise trips to war zones are now a given and no longer a surprise. But it was compelling, I thought. It was compelling to see the president of the United States and the president of Ukraine walking down a war-torn street in Kiev with uh, air raid sirens going off. It, it's a very powerful visual and a very powerful statement. And I applaud the president for being brave enough uh, and bold enough to do it. Not, right. not to jump in real quick, but one thing I absolutely love is if you start to walk back the last like two or three months and you start thinking about Secret Service and the military and probably somebody in Zelensky's crew knew about this, <laughs> All of a sudden, like two and a half months ago, we delivered one Patriot missile battery system to Ukraine. And I bet it's like literally directly next to the the in Kiev, next to where Biden. Next to the church. You know, like the assets that they slowly placed in Kiev that they can't like cover up. They couldn't be super quiet about it. Like all sort of leads to the surprise trip. And you can do that with any presidential surprise trip where you start to think back through the last like two or three months of news, like what precipitated it. It's always fun for me to do. So Rodney, how does the Republican House look at this kind of a trip? It's interesting. It's split. Um, and I saw this during my recent primary. Uh, I, I'm amazed that any Republican, for that matter, in Congress can vote against the NDAA and vote against funding our men and women in the military and authorizing those funds. But I was shocked because my opponent in the primary campaigned on getting our investment out of Ukraine. 
I think that is a very short-sighted approach. I have to agree with Towner and Mark. I thought it was a very effective visit. I've been to Kiev. I've stood right where the president and President Zelensky have stood. And it is shocking to me that we have so many Republicans that are willing to go on record right now stating that they want to pull out of any investment in Ukraine when we are fighting against a totalitarian regime of Vladimir Putin. I mean, I always had a barometer in my 10 years in Congress that if a totalitarian government attacked a democratically elected government, we in the United States and NATO in particular would stand up for the democratically elected government. Caitlin, what's your what's your take? I completely agree with everything Rodney just said. I think it's a, you know, a big shock when you see Republican I, 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 that's not a Republican value, that's not a value of promoting and supporting democratic norms across the country. Um, I was glad to see that on the, I believe today is the one year anniversary of the um, Putin's invasion in Ukraine. I will say, however, talking about kind of the split screen, contrasting the president being over and, and still being there in, in Poland and having these discussions to the fact that the administration really failed to show up in East Palestine, Ohio, the site of the train derailment has been quite an interesting split screen this week. But Fully support the president be going to and being in Ukraine, just contrasting that with sort of domestically here at home, the lack of administrative action on what's turning out to be a real crisis here domestically. Patrick, it's it's upside down to me. I mean, it's everything everybody's saying. It's up, It's upside down that the Democrats are hawkish and the Republicans are dovish or some of the Republicans are dovish. It's it just and I, I guess Trump. being first in line he's you know he's been critical and it feels like this is trumpism run amok in the republican party yeah i agree i mean i think that trump changed a lot of the conversation on foreign policy within the republican party i think the white house that's why i think the white house views ukraine as it's like you know it's a good issue for them because it's it kind of unites all of the normal people like and then it, it, it any issue where you can divide the republicans and you have enough agreement within your own party that's a good issue i mean i'm sure there, there are always on the left some some voices that i'm sure are saying you know we don't need to be doing this but they're not very loud and they're not influential i mean what congressman davis referred to the split in the republican party i don't know what the percentages are but i mean it's it seems like it's a real debate um and you have really strong voices on both sides and so I think I think that the White House views Ukraine as kind of a winning issue for them. Now, if the war, you know, there's continued to just been a lot of speculation about at what point is this going to tip? I mean, we've just, you know, Ukrainians have outperformed everyone's expectations for a long time. But if the narrative starts to shift and uh, the Russians gain some traction, how does that influence the narrative back home? I think that will be, you know, kind of a big part of the story later this year. The one thing I'll mention, I don't know if, I I agree with everything. I thought the president did a great job. One of our colleagues who was a loyal listener uh, sent me a text over the weekend pointing out though that, you know, it is a visual with Biden and Zelensky, which is not necessarily like super favorable. I mean, I think Joe Biden looked very presidential. His speech was very good, but you're putting him next to like this very young, charismatic leader of his country. And again, I don't like, I don't want you guys to think I'm just always ragging on Biden for being old, but like the visual, 
it, it is a reminder that the guy is really old because you're Patrick. He's old. He's old. He, I, he's I, old. And what I'm not going to throw this particular listener under the bus, although at least Howard will know who he is. But one of our loyal listeners sent me a note about the the visual and and I'm sorry to say I think he was serious and and maybe even right that the president's pants were too tight and if he would wear old man baggy pants he oh. wouldn't have to shuffle. God, <laughs> I have no idea who that is actually. <laughs> Mark, maybe a I don't want to know. Too, if he starts wearing sneakers with the suits, then yeah. then we're really you know. Oh. That roll up the cuffs is a Mark Alderman look. Roll totally. up the cuffs, put on the sneakers, and you get points. You know, so D- Darren Collier, our colleague, does that look. He just looks a lot yeah. cooler. I don't well, know how he to look like Darren. And I got compliments from the now speaker on the look. So I think the president, president could learn something from this. I hope I hope you're listening, Mr. President. But on on a slightly more serious note, Rodney, can I can I ask you this? The America first isolationism that is more Trump driven, I, I think, than any other uh, Republican leader seems I'm trying to sort out whether it is about Russia more than an ideology, because I don't think the folks who are questioning the investment in Ukraine would feel the same way if China invaded Taiwan. Where is how does the isolationism fit with the China policy of that constituency? I think this is just about Russia. I'm curious, actually, I'm curious, to, no, Roddy, I to this, hear. What, I would love to know your thoughts because I've thought about that too. I'm, I'm, I think it's a great question. Just what, just what is the? Is it Russia, Ukraine specific, or? Is it are, are Republicans in the House going to feel the same way to Mark's point if China were to invade Taiwan? Or it's just how far does the isolationist streak go? I'll be honest with you, I I hadn't thought of it in those terms, uh, but it is very interesting. I think it's a question that those isolationists on Ukraine need to answer. They need to answer if they're going to want to invest to protect Taiwan, if they're going to want to invest to protect the South China Sea Islands, Palau. And, and other places that are strategically important to the United States. To, invest, um, to uh, protect Israel against Iran? Israel against Iran, absolutely. I, I will tell you, I, I just don't think the thought process for many of the many of my former colleagues goes that deep. I, I just think it's it's opportunism. It's an opportunity to get more people to like their posts on social media and get them more airtime. To me, that is the unfortunate driver of many of their policy positions uh, in a very small group. Remember, this is not the majority of Republicans in the House or the majority of Republicans in the Senate. Um, We've got Chairman Mike McCall, Chairman Mike Rogers of Armed Services that are dead set on protecting Ukraine and ensuring that we have a bipartisan voice in this. It's a very select few that have come out as isolationist. And I think it's a, a question they need to answer about whether or not this is just Ukraine-based or if it's going to portend a, a policy position for them throughout the rest of the globe. Yes, yeah, this, this, this is a proxy war. It's a proxy war. This is a proxy war. It's a proxy war against Russia. 
And it's a proxy war as a statement vis-a-vis China. And look, China is talking about delivering arms to Russia. We just sent more troops into Taiwan. The speaker is going to Taiwan, I, I heard, sometime coming up here. Like, there's a massive proxy war going on. This is, look, we're fighting in Ukraine to, we're supplying Ukraine with arms to fend off Russia. It's, this is a proxy war. It's like, it feels like, Tanner, I think we were talking about this earlier in the week. It feels like Vietnam and in a lot of ways, maybe in the reverse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have you have the same world powers that are fighting. Um, thank God in this particular case, we're not the one with troops on the ground uh, as it was in Vietnam. But, um, you know, it's it's the same situation. Yeah, to a point, Howard, that you made earlier this morning in a text, uh, it, it'll be interesting, Rodney, uh, Towner, Caitlin, in the Republican presidential primary. It it will be interesting to see who comes out where. Uh, it, it's a proxy war and it's a proxy issue uh, to, to me. It, yeah, it's an, well, and what the issue. status of the war is during the Republican primary too, right? Like Ukraine's interesting right now because ever like, I just feel like people, people feel kind of good because we haven't had to, to Towner's point, we haven't had to commit American troops, but we also feel like we're helping and Ukraine is outperforming expectations. So it like, there's kind of a, like an era of, of positive feeling about the whole situation, but that could change really quickly. Right. And then how does that impact domestic politics? If, if it like, really appears like the Russians are making significant progress and in well, taking but there's a reason they're overperforming expectations because we're supplying them with right military yeah. goods we have right. superior armaments well that's half the reason and I'm over my head as a military analyst here but Russia has underperformed yeah that's expectations. That is, and I think that's part of where many Republicans in Congress will draw the line they don't view Russia as the same competitor militarily and economically as China and I think that will change their posture but it's it's going to be a part of the Republican presidential primary you've already seen Florida Governor Ron DeSantis come out and highlight his opposition to Biden going to Ukraine and leaving East Pala. I found out after I said this in the national news media a couple of times, we are pronouncing East Palestine wrong. Mm. It's East Palestine. Yes. Um, I, I was shocked to find that out and uh, and regret my pr- previous pronunciations. But <laughs> DeSantis coming out shows you that this Ukraine issue can be very effective in the primary. Clearly, I found out that being pro-Ukraine is not very effective to win a Republican primary in the northwestern part of Illinois. Well, and I think that's the difficult part about it, because if you look at what Congress has done, how members of Congress have voted on the Republican side of the aisle with regards to the Ukraine funding, um, it's a 75, 80 percent in favor of engagement in Ukraine issue in Congress. But the 20 to 25 percent are Freedom Caucus, who are very good at making noise. The problem for Republicans is more so 
that it's becoming an issue for presidential candidates. So you have Trump, obviously, you have DeSantis, who who had his his statements that I didn't care for this week uh, in a big anti-Ukraine engagement. We'll see if it drags in Nikki Haley. I don't think it's going to drag in Tim Scott, but others who get in the race may feel as though they need to take a similar anti-Ukraine uh, involvement. And then it's become the party platform, even though 75 to 80% of members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, are in support of, of taking all the actions that we've taken in Ukraine. Yeah, to me, I guess this isn't all, Patrick, about politics. Yes. It's not all about politics. At some level, it's about doing the right thing. On some level, it's about our stature in the world. I mean, it all has political implications, but I don't think that every decision, I don't think they have the finger, their finger to the wind on every single decision that's made, at least I hope not. And maybe I'm naive. No, I agree with you. And and honestly, to credit something Towner just said, the 75% of Republicans that have supported our effort, the, you know, the American investment in defending Ukraine, it, it pro I don't know what it pulls in all their districts, but you know, foreign policy like stuff like this is tricky. That's where the Freedom Caucus position is just inherently political BS, which is you can you can point to anything and say, See, the reason your life is is not the way you want it to be, it's because we're spending money over there. And it's just, it is such a weak, unfair, politically- a false choice. It's a false choice. And I think that statesmen in our Congress and in the administration recognize that there are just, you know, there are things we have to do. There are just responsibilities we have globally. And even if it's not super politically popular, you know, we have to do it. We've obviously, given what we've been through the last 20 years, we've really drawn the line on, you know, boots on the ground, troops on the ground. That's where I think the conversation changes. And that's where Americans and the, you know, ability to, you know, see how much we're going to invest is that that's where the conversation changes. But those who are criticizing for purely crass political purposes, you know, defending Ukraine. I, I just think, to your point, Howard, it's it's it well, can't just be about politics. Yeah, and I think, Howard, to that point, two, two observations that we've made in other contexts on, on this podcast. The underlying consensus in this country on fundamental values is much stronger than reported and much stronger than the partisan methodology of politics today would would suggest this is maybe the most pressing issue in the world today it's certainly you can count on one hand issues that are as important in the world and the overwhelming majority of american people think we're getting it right we're there we're fighting on the side of freedom but we're fighting with investment and, and weaponry and not boots on the ground in a, a European war with Russia. Listen, that, there's a that, massive global struggle, Mark. Sorry to interrupt on autocracy versus right. democracy. Right. And it's not we've had it in our own country, I would argue. They're having it right now in Israel. Right. Um, in, in some form, it's rule of law versus autocratic kind of beyond rule of law um, governing. And it's a global struggle. And 
but I, I do have to say one thing gnaws at me in all of this, Caitlin, and it's our debt because like we spend, 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 and we borrow, 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 and and rack up, rack up a bill. And look, I think we're doing the right thing. I think we have to do Rodney what you said. Go places where, you know, there's there's the struggle that that I just articulated. But God, it bugs me that every time we're spending money, we're borrowing money and creating a an obligation that we can never really meet and that that's the thing that it's just like i said it gnaws at me well as a as as one of the more conservative republicans here on the beltway briefing i would much rather spend money for our national defense and support and promotion of de- democracy and democratic norms across the nation which in turn, benefits our self-defense than on things like canceling billions in student loan debt and some of the domestic policies that this White House has been supporting. So I totally agree with you, Howard, but I think this is one area where, you know, the Constitution says we should be we should be spending. It is in support of national defense as opposed to some of the, you know, programs that this administration has rolled out that have been insane amounts of government spending. And, and I think this is part of the struggle for Republicans is I think the three of us uh, Republican, I self-identified Republicans, even though I still think Howard slightly leans towards us in most issues um, uh, are Never on tell. this podcast. We were excellent Republicans in 2002. Like we were the best Republicans in 2002. Um, we're not standard Republicans necessarily in 2023. And it's a it's a big difference. It's a big, you know, sort of sea change that the Republican Party is going through with the populist uh, aspect with the Freedom Caucus. Uh, I would argue the Freedom Caucus is closer to uh, libertarian progressives uh, on the Democratic side than they are to, you know, us, the the establishment Republicans of of the early 2000s. So um, it's a, it's a problem for the party and they're going to work through it in a primary that's going to be just messy. We've gone through one already a couple of years ago. We're going to go through another one. Uh, and, and I don't know that there's going to be much resolution coming out of that either. Rodney, how do you how do you reconcile? this dilemma between borrowing, spending, and being the world's leader as far as democracy is concerned? Well, just so the listeners understand, the first TV ad that I ever ran running for Congress had me coaching my kids' uh, youth football team and talking about our debt. And it was, I believe, $15 trillion at the time. And I said, that is our number one priority. Well, Anybody who is in Congress right now and talks about the debt being their priority, but doesn't talk about the 80% of spending that is on the mandatory side of our our spending ledger, rather than the 25%, which is discretionary, that includes defense that we were talking about just now, as Caitlin so eloquently said, most Republicans want to spend on our national defense. And that's indiscretionary. Education funding is discretionary. Agriculture funding, health and human services funding. Those are the types of things that Republicans fight over on an annual spending bill basis. What they don't want to touch, and this is what is amazing to me, and I witnessed this transformation, because when Donald Trump came in, those who supported him the most 
were those who said we have got to cut mandatory spending in everything we do. Towner can tell you that we used to have this fight over a farm bill when it came to mandatory spending. We had to cut a certain amount of mandatory spending to rein in our debt, not just the deficit, but our debt. And then under Donald Trump, nobody cared about the debt. Frankly, they didn't care about the deficit. And then COVID hit. You know, I'm not using Alderman's excuse here. COVID actually hit <laughs> back in 2020. And, and that exacerbated trillions of dollars in spending domestically because government told the private sector to shut down. The private sector needed to survive at the end of this pandemic. And that was necessary at the time. But then you added on the Democrats spending in the last couple of years of trillions of dollars in more domestic spending. Well, we should have been pairing that back. That has exacerbated the debt that even concerns globalists like you, Howard. And, and that's something that we have to be concerned about as Republicans and any Republican that takes the mandatory side of our ledger off the table when debating the debt is not a serious legislator. Isn't our single greatest line item expenditure as a government the servicing of our debt, which which makes you you just keep chasing your tail here? Yeah, it's not the single greatest. Um, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid continue to be, but yeah, I mean it's it's going to be, and especially if we get another credit decrease or downgrade because we run up on the debt ceiling. Um, that's the biggest thing. I, I don't understand why Republicans would be okay with a credit downgrade that jacks our mandatory spending on on interest on the debt through the roof. That doesn't make any dang sense. Um, so, you know, I mean, yeah, it's it's poised to be. And with interest rates increasing, we probably, you know, I know average families who have variable rate interest rates are uh, debt and very variable rate interest rates are losing a ton of money right now because interest rates are high. And the federal government's no different. I mean, I, I don't know what it is. Our interest payment was around $350 billion a year on our debt. Um, because of interest rates, that's almost doubled uh, or more than doubled, I think, at this point. So this year, we're looking at maybe a payment of around $650 to $700 billion. I'm going to have to double check on what that exact figure is. But I need, but, the, I need the right numbers, Towner. I'm going to the fish, <laughs> I'm going to the fish fry at the Knights of Columbus tonight, and I got to have yeah. these numbers. I got to have them right at the tips of my fingers. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you could put out like a little like donation jar, that would be awesome. We yeah. got to get seven hundred billion in the door. So <laughs> one thing, to, one thing to think about when it comes to the debt, and and Towner just threw it out there: the 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 third rail of politics, Social Security and Medicare. Nobody wants to cut those programs for people who are on Social Security or Medicare right now. Not at all. And unfortunately, every time there's a discussion to fix it for our generation um, and generations beyond, you know, current seniors, grandkids generation, uh, AARP and other organizations come out and, and try to scare politicians and scare Americans who are on those programs into thinking they're going to get their benefits cut. That's yeah. not going to happen. However, however, I would think that AARP and groups like that and seniors would want those programs around for their grandkids. And I'm willing to make some changes for my generation. I'm willing to make sure that we make some changes so that those programs survive for future generations. But unfortunately, everybody in Washington and more and more Republicans right now are sticking their head in the sand 
And we're not going to get anything done when it comes to the debt because you're not addressing 80% of the spending that will continue to go out the Department of Treasury, as Howard could tell you when he worked there. We could shut the government down tomorrow. We could have a discretionary spending government shutdown like we've had plenty of times over the last 10 years. And still 80% of all federal expenditures will automatically still go out of the Department of Treasury and will continue to add to the debt. Unfortunately, I don't think there is a solution. It's too big. There's going to have to be because the insolvency dates are coming up very quickly. Well, true. Um, I think there is a solution to Social Security and Medicare. Absolutely. But I don't think there's a solution to paying down $30 trillion in, in debt. And I do think that there's a reckoning out there somewhere in that regard. And it just it frustrates me greatly because... I, I want us, like you said, I'm a globalist. Like I want us out there protecting the world from that was supposed to be an insult. I'm sorry you took it as a compliment. Ah, ah. Well, I take it as a, a guilty as charged then. Yeah. Now you have to say, Rodney, an alleged globalist. That that gives it the criminal overtone. Ah. Well, no, I want us out there. But it's I but at the same time that I want us out there. I feel it's both a, sides coming. Well, well let me, let me <laughs> both let sides me, is a run of mine. Both sides coming. Here we do you go. know? Do you know what's going to extend the solvency of Social Security? It's the pig and the python. It's the baby boomers. I mean, I, I mean, I, I sat with Paul Ryan, who was like a savant with all of these fiscal issues, and you know, he would talk about the debt to GDP ratios. He would talk about the pig and the python. I mean, right now, the expenditures that we have in those programs are exorbitantly higher than what they will be due to sheer demographics when it comes to future generations, because there are so many baby boomers in that generation before them that are still utilizing those programs, where there's a lot less population that will be utilizing those programs in the future if they stick to their original mission. If they continue to add younger and younger people, then that will continue down the pathway to insolvency. So un- unfortunately, through just attrition and death, these programs will probably be extended. Um, but I, I'm I'm with you, Howard. I, we shouldn't have to wait for that to, to put some solutions in place. I agree. Get the I, Not that the young people have proven to be a as potent a political force as they should be, but like get the younger people on board too with the changes. Cause I don't know anyone under the age of 40 that even thinks social security is going to be around by the time that they could use it. So use that, get, get, you know, get Gen Gen X and everyone else to, to buy into, to changes. I'm, I, I agree with you, Rodney, on really everything you said on the mandatory spending side. I mean, it's everyone know, like the kind of talk about, the conversation we're having about Ukraine, talk about a political conversation. It's like the fact that you just can't talk about these programs and what we all know is going to happen because it's a political third rail. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it, we know we have to make changes, but I won, I won five congressional races in a very competitive district talking about the need to change how the systems that we have in place of social security, and Medicare actually operate. I yeah. lost a primary, not even talking about those programs at all. Yeah. Well, Caitlin. I'm going to take this opportunity, Howard, just briefly to thank all of you 
as the only recipient on this podcast of either of those programs. I'm very much appreciated it uh, that you're funding them. And if you could, I, I don't need a hundred years. going a little longer. Yeah, but I, another decade or two, Rodney, much appreciated. Thank you. You know, he's he's <laughs> he's he's up in his contribution to AARP right now. They're <laughs> they're fighting for that. Just so you know, I actually I actually supported an increase in your cost. You know, the you you and Bill Gates. Uh, that was one of my solutions I I, I put forth to help yeah. save the system. I mean, that's what's so screwed up about this is. Mark, you don't, you know, you don't need it. And it's, uh, you know, the, the that is a I very... Don't means test every mandatory pro, like right. spending. It makes, it it's makes absurd. zero sense. It's How's absurd. Mark going to buy those tennis shoes? He's, 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 he's going to be barefoot if he doesn't get his social Here's security. Here's Why the thing do you think it? I'm keeping the money from the pool I'm about to run? Here's it. Here's the thing that irritates me about it, though. I don't like the means testing of those programs. If everybody's paying in, and not just through regular taxes, everybody's paying in through special taxes, FICA and and Medicare, then they should get the benefit out of that, in my personal opinion. Now, what I do think is that you should pay those taxes on all of your income, and you should not be capped out. And that's not an issue for most Americans. Thankfully, it's an issue for us, uh, probably across the board. And, you know, there's a point in time in the year when we stop paying Social Security taxes because we've hit the maximum uh, income level. And at that point, it doesn't make any sense to me. I think Americans as a whole should have to pay FICA taxes on all of their income throughout the year, um, including those who are in partnerships who seem to avoid a lot of those FICA taxes as well. Um, but I do still think that everybody should get benefits if they are paying the taxes. That's yeah. my two So Caitlin, Caitlin, you mentioned yeah. earlier the you contrasted the East Palestine Thank you, Rami. derailment with the with with Ukraine and all the attacks. I, I contrasted in my mind with the spy balloon. Like we were so consumed, Towner. You pointed this out to me. We were so consumed with the with the spy balloon that nobody even knew that there was a train derailment and a spill of toxic chemicals. The people uh, in Ohio and West Virginia and some of Pennsylvania sure as hell did. Yeah, yeah. The media now, did. You're right, Howard. Yeah. So, what do you, Caitlin? What do you make of that? Well, look. I think the. I'm going to be very careful here because I don't want to say something that is po- that is overly positive of our former president. However, I think some of what he said, President Trump said when he went down there, these are more forgotten communities. These are not communities that make front page news on the New York Times and MSNBC and CNN. And I think it's a bit of a of a travesty, frankly, that it took you know Secretary Buttigieg two weeks nearly to get down there to the site. I think if this would have happened outside New York City, it would have been front page news and competing with the, you know, China balloon story, which also frankly took us days to to take any action on from this administration. But I think it's it's a shame, a damn shame that it hasn't gotten the front page media attention on day one that it should have. Mark, what's your, or Patrick, what's your reaction to that? I mean, listen, you're you're a great. good Midwestern wholesome yeah. 
it's a tragedy what happened. Secretary Buttigieg did something that politicians don't often do. And he, and, and he, again, he's not, a, he is a politician, but he's a cabinet secretary, but he admitted, he said, I was a little, I was, you know, it was a, it was a learning, it was a lesson learned. I should have responded quickly. Just, you know, I like when people just are honest and take responsibility. I, I do agree. Listen, and I'd be curious, Ronnie's perspective too. It is, there is a feeling in the middle of the country like stuff just gets overlooked all the time. And if it doesn't happen on the coast, it doesn't matter. And there's people that feel like that is a real thing. And I think situations like this highlight that. I think it's legit. It is legit. I mean, it's just, and and it's, it's because, you know, Caitlin mentioned the reporter, all the reporters live in Washington and New York. And a lot of them, grew up in you know uh, on the east coast too and it's there just isn't an appreciation for like when something like this happens in this small town in ohio i mean it is i mean just the visual on television by the way we haven't really i don't think we talked about in a previous podcast but i mean it is horrific what happened i mean it's just like it kind of takes your breath away when you see just the totality of the disaster and yeah, there's a feeling, I think, it's not even a Democrat or Republican thing. When stuff happens like this in Ohio or Indiana or, you know, smaller towns in Illinois, like where Ronnie's from, I just think that people don't expect the government to respond as quickly. And that's screwed up. Well, it's partially the government, but it's partially the media. Yeah. And it's not all about it's the great government. Point. That's a really good point. It's the media ignored it. Yeah. Largely. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And the media is biased. The yes. media is biased. Yes. There's, there's no, the, the mainstream media is biased to the left and biased. It's what you said. It's if it happened on the coasts, I read in the, I read the economist magazine, which shocking. I know. And there was that a quote in there that if it, that if it had happened in Potomac, Maryland, Somebody yeah. said if it had happened in Potomac, Maryland, it would have been very different. And of course, that's right next door to where 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 I live. And I, you know, I, I think that's right. I think yeah. the media narrative would have been completely different, Caitlin. If, as you said, if it were in Westchester or Potomac, Maryland, than it is if it's in a town of 5000 people in Ohio. And you you can make it a liberal or conservative thing, but it's it's a lot more than that too. It isn't just a political distinction that like the media is liberal and you know the rest of the country can't relate to what they're seeing. The is is urban and cosmopolitan and sushi eating and that that has nothing to do necessarily with how people vote, how they live. Well, it has to do with where people live and yeah, concentrations yeah. of people and the number of people, how you attract viewers. It, it's it's like, it, yeah, it's like it's like an Olive Garden test. Like these people don't go to chain restaurants <laughs> and, and in smaller communities, that's the only place to go to eat. Right. And it's like it's a different way of living. And the coastal reporters and media elite, they 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 ignore stuff when it doesn't happen 
in places they care about. They just I, I, I resent that remark, Patrick. I spent a lot of time at the Olive Garden in college, so I resent That's that right. remark. Your time in Ann Arbor has g- gave you uh, some real Midwestern perspective. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, because that is yeah. definitely That's the... not. Ann Arbor isn't Midwest street cred, Patrick. I said that. It was facetious. Trust me. But Howard, I want to make... Without quarreling at all with that... Analysis and indictment of of the media coverage of this. I don't want to lose another point in it that that to me is uh, important and and reassuring. Uh, yeah, it, the response was slow, but everybody's response when they got around to responding, and I am sure this was the response on the ground in in Ohio. Everybody's response was government has to do something. This is a case for government because nobody is saying the capital markets will fix railroad safety. Nobody is saying, let's just leave it to management and labor to negotiate it out. Everybody is looking to the federal government to fix. Where's FEMA? Where's the EPA? Yeah. Yeah. And one yeah. story I do want to chime in here because we actually have a client that's this is how I came to talk to Howard about this. We represent American <laughs> Water, which is an investor owned utility across the country, and they are the one who did it, uh, specifically West Virginia American Water, because the Ohio River uh, flows past Huntington, West Virginia, and they run the, the water, drinking water uh, system in Huntington. They literally laid 100 miles of water pipe set up a temporary pumping station and change the river in which they get their water for the drinking water for the entire town of Huntington within hours of when the train crash happened because they knew where it happened. And by the time the chemical plume made it made its way down the Ohio River, the entire town of Huntington was drinking from a different river a hundred miles away. And they took a response that unlike anything I've ever seen before, and uh, they did it from an investor-owned water side. And they didn't stop and wait for FEMA. And they didn't say, best of luck to you, citizens of Huntington. So this is how we got involved in this much earlier, when the balloon was still passing over and nobody was paying attention. Yeah. And, you know, there's this, this, you know, not to tie everything back into to what we do as a profession, but there's there's sometimes very good proactive messages uh, that, that we can take up to Capitol Hill uh, that we take to the rest of the administration. And this was a this was a, a big, big issue uh, for us over the course of the last two weeks here. Do you guys see the stories about the firefighters, too? I mean, that was, to me, like really amazing narrative on the whole situation that happened. This is not the Detroit or Chicago fire departments. This is a small town in Ohio. And I mean, th- it was really amazing how these local fire departments responded. Well, I mean, this is such a great discussion on a tragic accident right now that that is not commonplace. Look, I've got seven class one railroads that come through our home state of Illinois, Patrick. Three come through my district that I used to represent. Train accidents are not commonplace. Train delays are very commonplace and very frustrating. But tragic accidents like this don't happen often. And and everybody on this call agreed that there is a media bias. Whether or not it's because they now represent more Democratic urban areas that used to be even more Republican in the past, that they become more biased. We can have that debate another on another podcast. But the question I have is, 
because of their lack of coverage of what happened in Eastern Ohio, which is more like Appalachia than it is Cincinnati or Columbus. Did that delay Secretary Buttigieg's response? Did that delay the Biden administration's response? Because they didn't take it seriously. And when we talk about viewership, those many of those media companies can look at their viewership and their readership in those urban and suburban numbers right now. But the bottom line is this, Fox News has the most viewership in Appalachia, has the most viewership in the country. And I think the administration needs to take a closer look at what is being covered. President Trump doesn't do anything fast. Him getting to East Palestine was a long time coming. And this administration had so many opportunities to fix it while while their appointees were doing a very good job at the NTSB. People like Jen Hammondy at the NTSB did their job to get to the bottom of what happened. And they didn't take advantage of the good people that they've actually hired to do their job and go out and say, let's hold back, let's wait, let's figure this out. But being there was key. And they were not. And I've been a I'm I consider Secretary Buttigieg a friend. We've biked around DC together. I've told Republicans give him a chance, but this is one clear failure of his of, of his department. Well, to be continued, we'll watch how, how this story develops. And gosh, we hit a wide range of topics this morning and good episode, guys. Hope our listeners enjoy it. And we will be back next week. Rodney, Mark, Caitlin, Patrick, Towner. Thanks for joining and thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.